The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. Father Jenkins is a traditional Catholic priest. He's also a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Great to be here. Good. Great to be back. Father, uh, last week we got through quite a bit of emails, and uh, we got some good feedback from our viewers, uh, some very positive feedback concerning that. Um, so I'd like to try and continue with that, Father. There are quite a large number of emails in our inbox, um, so I'd like to try and try and get through some more tonight. If we could, uh, the first one, uh, I'll read this from the viewer who says, I was wondering what Father Jenkins' take is on the pastoral activities going on in the church with regards to the so-called LGBT community. Is providing a dedicated kind of community-based network group or gathering within the Catholic Church for people self-identifying as LGBT, is that helpful and something that can be interpreted in continuity with tradition, or is it kind of an innovation? It is, helpful, is it helpful in your view, or might there be more effective ways of ministering to the needs of these individuals? Uh, do you know where this movement originated and how it developed? Well, I don't know uh, how it originated, uh, how it developed, but in answer to the question whether I think it is helpful or not, I think it is very harmful. To identify um, a group of people in, in a so-called community, something that binds them together and uh, unites them in like a common interest or a common cause, and to make that uh, sexual perversion is not a good idea. I mean, it, 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 it kind of uh, legitimates uh, or legitima legitimizes something that is, uh, that is more very morally wrong and that is very morally harmful. I mean, the church says that such, well, we, we can sin in thought, word, and deed, as you know. <clears throat> to indulge in thoughts of these things, uh, uh, words about these things, speaking of these things, and uh, acting upon these things for the sake of enjoying them, or uh, that, that is morally wrong. I know it's not politically correct today to say that, but this is the teaching of the Catholic Church, that we're involving things that are not only morally sinful, they're mortally sinful, and they're mortally sinful contra naturam, you know, against, against nature, <clears throat> which gives them a particular act of being very perverse. So, um, no, it's, uh, you know, you, you would not have a, a, let's say, identify a community of people according to other vices, right? Uh, they don't really talk about Al Alcoholics Anonymous being the, the alcoholic community, right? Or Al-Anon as being the drug-taking community, Right, yeah. uh, they look upon these things as uh, damaging and dangerous practices. Uh, 
And so why would we, uh, you know, like establish some kind of a, a, a fictitious community of people who share this common mm-hmm. affliction, right? Right. Um, so I, I think, well, I, I'm quite convinced that it is a very, very bad idea, very wrong thing to do, and uh, it actually, uh, I think, encourages corruption, yeah. a corruption of the soul, and, and actually in this life, and the damnation of the soul in the next. Okay. All right. Um, this next one, Father, this viewer says, uh, she's thinking in terms of Archbishop Vigano, and she asks, what would a Novus Ordo priest have to do to renounce the teachings of Vatican II and return to the one true faith? Would they have to start from scratch at a seminary, or how would a uh, Novus Ordo priest go about becoming a traditional Catholic priest? Well, take a, uh, a man who's been through the Novus Ordo ceremony, seminaries, right? Um, and he was ordained in the Novus Ordo, functioned in the Novus Ordo, and now realizes the new order is modernism and it's wrong, right? It's not Catholicism. <clears throat> it's a sense, it's a conversion, actually. Now, one might say, well, it, he's probably very conservative, and he's probably, uh, you know, has a, a good, a fairly good grasp on the faith, recognizing the difference between the true Catholic faith now and modernism. And that's why he's made the decision that modernism is not Catholicism, right? So it kind of, if he's making that decision, it kind of presumes that he knows enough about the Catholic faith and believes enough of the Catholic faith to recognize it is not modernism and modernism is not Catholicism. <clears throat> and um, so I, I think if you were to sit down with him and go through the faith, go through the catechism with him, you'd find <clears throat> that he actually believes uh, that he has the virtue of faith, and that he actually believes most or all that's in the catechism. <clears throat> but you can't presume that. That's the problem. Going through the Novus Ordo ceremony, seminaries, sorry, you cannot <clears throat> presume that he learned the faith in its integrity. And so, just as with any other convert, you'd have to go through the catechism very carefully. You'd have to go through the moral theology manual, because not only is he expected to believe the faith, he's expected to teach the faith. <clears throat> so all the more reason why you have to be absolutely sure <clears throat> that he actually knows the faith and knows it as a priest must know it. You'd have to go through the Catechism of the Council of Trent with him and make sure he knows what it teaches and t- that he believes it. And then he would have to decide, as any other convert would, um, that not only does he, does, does he know and have a good grasp of the faith, but that he believes it, but also that he's willing to live up to it personally, and that he's willing to represent that faith to others, too, in its integrity. So uh, there's a lot that has to be done. So uh, someone who comes over from the Novus Ordo, the New Order, who's been uh, trained, bred, trained, and and ordained in the Novus Ordo, would certainly have to resume, uh, he'd have to go back to the traditional Catholic seminary, and uh, would he have to go through the, the entire course of study as someone who, for example, just entered as a, as a, in his late teens? No, not necessarily. He'd, he'd have an accelerated course, I imagine. But nonetheless, the end product would have to be exactly what you'd want from any true traditional Catholic priest ever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that he'd have to know the faith and, and, and believe it firmly and... Uh, and uh, live it and be able to represent it. Um, 
It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a certain amount of humility. You think of Father Randolph, who as an Anglican became the dean of the uh, Anglican Cathedral in Johannesburg, South Africa, which was a very exalted position and may well have been on track to become an Anglican bishop. And yet when he saw that the that Anglicanism was not the true faith and that Catholicism is the true faith, he, uh, he, re he went to the uh, authorities, the church authorities there, uh, made his abjuration of error, was received into the Catholic Church as a layman, and entered the seminary uh, in Rome and uh, went through the full course of study and uh, was ordained a Catholic priest. This is what he did, and it showed that he was sincere, truly sincere in his faith, and he had a very, very fruitful priesthood, as you know, uh, a very uh, exemplary traditional Catholic priest. So uh, we need to pray for his soul, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we owe him that. Okay, thank you, Father, for that. Uh, this next one is from a viewer all the way in Toronto, Canada. Uh, first of all, she says that Toronto is very scarce of the one true Catholic faith, so please keep her in your prayers. Uh, but she asked, Father, do you know anything about the Legion of Mary? She says, uh, I know they have the Legion of Mary in most, if not all, Novus Ordo parishes, but when I got to reading about the group and their work, I found out that the Legion of Mary was actually very much different uh, pre-Vatican II. I was wondering if you knew if their novenas and devotions are valid. Well, I must say I don't. I don't know the current state of the Legion of Mary. I imagine the moder modernism of Vatican II has blighted it and uh, perhaps uh, transformed it and even corrupted it, as modernism does. Um, I don't know what priests are even involved in... Uh, in the Legion of Mary uh, at the moment. I, I, don't, I don't know of anyone, really, who is actually actively involved in the Legion of Mary. But I will say this, that a number of people have, in fact, made that re inquiry, including some from Immaculate Conception Church here in Norwood. And I have been intent upon investigating this and finding out the answer to the very questions that this dear person asks. So I, I pledge to do so to investigate for the sake of those who have been asking. Uh, we had been asked before repeatedly to have, do a program on Our Lady of Good Success, and it took us a while, but we did succeed in doing that. And uh, I now make the pledge to uh, have a program on the Legion of Mary, what it was, what it is now, and, uh, and uh, well, basically what it should be, right? what, what it was designed to be. So we'll talk about that. All right. Sounds good. By the way, if I may put a footnote on what yeah. I said about a young a, a priest coming from the Novus Ordo. Yes. Uh, because of the doubtfulness of the new ordination, right, <clears throat> it's not only a matter of going through the program, the seminary training and the, the theology, but it's a matter of also being at least conditionally ordained in the traditional right. I think any traditional Catholic would insist on that, right? right. Yeah. <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, one of the largest or, or at least larger organizations in the world that styles itself traditional Catholic now does not necessarily require that, does not necessarily require that those who are coming from the Novus Ordo be conditionally ordained in the traditional rite. 
And I can't understand why any traditional Catholic would would uh, countenance that or accept that. Um, you'd think that would be like the most fundamental requirement that they be conditionally ordained by a traditional bishop in the traditional rite of ordination mm -hmm. in order to provide the mass and sacraments for me and my family. And I don't understand why those who would think of themselves, want to think of themselves as traditional Catholics, would, would not insist on that. But there are many, in fact, who are following this organization that I'm talking about. Maybe they don't even realize it. Maybe they don't even realize that they're, um, well, being given, you know, a, a clergyman converted from the Novus Ordo, maybe had uh, some cursory training in Catholic theology, the traditional Catholic theology, but was never conditionally ordained. They're ordained only in the new rite. Wow. That's a problem. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, Father, we, um, back in November, I believe, we, uh, we, we referenced one of uh, Bishop, Archbishop Vigano's letters that he wrote, uh, mm -hmm. I think it was in November of 2020, and uh, one of the, the quotes from that letter of Vigano's, uh, I believe he was talking about the Blessed Mother and uh, perhaps the Rosary, and um, a line from that letter, letter Father Archbishop Vigano wrote, All of you take up this spiritual weapon before which Satan and his minions retreat furiously, because they fear the Most Holy Virgin, she who is almighty by grace even more than almighty God. Father, uh, the sphere says that m many of us are uh, confused by this by this line here, and I believe, Father, that even um, when we did that program, I believe you, you kind of stopped at that uh, at that mm -hmm. point, and we were kind of confused for a minute, but we never really got into it. So, do you have any kind of deeper explanation for that, Father? Why would you know write that? <clears throat> well, Archbishop Vigano is a is uh, an Italian, and perhaps that statement was originally written in Italian, but perhaps not because he was Apostolic Nuncio here in America for five or six years, and he speaks fluent English. So he might have originally written that in English. I think the problem is syntax. Because when you first read that, Tom, my understanding was that, that he was saying, <clears throat> the Blessed Mother is almighty by grace even more than almighty God. As though she's, in a sense, almighty by grace, more almighty than almighty God. Okay, that, that seems to be the flow of it. But I don't, I'm sure that's not what he's saying, of course, because that would be heretical, yeah. right? Um, I mean, on the face of it, nobody can be almighty by grace, uh, and certainly not almighty by grace, more almighty than almighty God. Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't make any sense at all in terms of Catholicism. But I'm sure that's not what he's saying. I think the point that he's saying is <coughs> that Satan, <coughs> Satan is more <coughs> fearful of the Blessed Mother then he is fearful of Almighty God himself. Really? I think that's his point. Is that true? Uh, in a sense, it, it, you can understand it to be true. The reason being is the one thing Satan hates is to be humiliated. <clears throat> to be vanquished by Almighty God is far less humiliating for him than to be vanquished by the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, to be vanquished by her must be for him like the height of humiliation that God would <clears throat> provide the power and so exalt her by his grace that she would have dominion over him that he could not resist her, that 
as the scripture says, to him, she's like an army drawn up in battle array against him, you know, <laughs> and he is powerless to resist. Uh, that must be just the, the abject pits of, <laughs> of humiliation for, of, for him. Um, but when you think, when you, when you see what our Lord did here, I mean, giving us the sacraments and uh, uh, the, the sacrament of baptism with water, I mean, what could be more seemingly innocuous than water, right? Seemingly, because we know the force of flood, right? We know the force of a tsunami. We know the force of that. <clears throat> but the substance water itself, I mean, here we have it here, you know, we, we are not threatened by this at all. But to think that God could use that in order to raise the soul from uh, just being dead in sin to, to alive in divine grace, sanctifying grace, that's a tremendous power. But Christ our Lord invested in the sacrament of baptism. And to think that that's all it takes to vanquish Satan and all of his efforts, you know, to undermine and sabotage the human race. And then I mean, choosing bread and wine as the body and blood, to become the body and blood of Christ, right? To be transubstantiated. Uh, choosing holy oil, right? To anoint the, the person, body and soul for death. Uh, I mean, these common substances um, into which, are, as it were, our Lord, in a sense, um, just invested such power, these sacramental actions involving this matter, and, and the form associated with it that states the significance of the action being performed. I mean, that's, that's supernatural power. God invested his supernatural power in these sacraments. And again, Satan must just be fit to be tied. You know, well, well, we know it's worse than that, right? <laughs> but I mean, we think about holy water. Um, even holy water seems so simple. And yet, to him, it is it is worse than the pains of hell. You know why would a why would a demon complain to Father Amorth, the Roman exorcist, that we suffer more here during this exorcism than we would suffer in hell, but for the fact that he's being confronted with the holy name of Jesus, the name of Mary, the sacramentals, crucifix, holy water, these very simple things, material things, actually. And, uh, you know, God has invested his power in, in these marvelous things uh, that he raises to uh, have power over Satan for the sake of subjugating him. So there, there's really little doubt in my mind, and I think uh, Archbishop Vigano has stated it well, although I'd probably change the word order a little bit to make it more clear, that Satan does have a special fear of Our Lady a special fear of Our Lady, uh, even apart from the fear that he has for the, the might of Almighty God, wow. to vanquish him. That's fascinating. Mm. Uh, okay, <clears throat> another email. Father, this viewer says, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Taylor from YouTube uh, has recently recommended that we assemble peacefully at our state capitol building and march around at seven times carrying rosaries <coughs> and chanting the rosary like they did carrying the Ark of the Covenant and the Battle of Jericho in the Old Testament. Uh, so, Father, what do you think about the suggestion having a rosary procession around every state capitol building, um, as, as uh, apparently Taylor Marshall suggested? 
Well, uh, this was actually done, I understand, in Washington, D.C. I think it was done around the Capitol building. Is that right? I believe, Had you heard about that? I believe so, yes, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't aware of it. I think Archbishop Vigano even took part in it, even as well, like an ecumenical service, although an ecumenical service, service with the rosary, the rosary is not ecumenical. It is a Catholic devotion, right? So uh, <clears throat> even though there are those who are non-Catholics who reach for the rosary and carry rosaries and even perhaps learn how to pray the rosary, they're praying a Catholic devotion there. And uh, so, um, um, you know, does it have any special significance? Well, insofar as the Israelites uh, march around um, Jericho, right, uh, uh, seven times and blew the trumpets, um, I think that's what this is supposed to, in a sense, recall. The moment of that victory of making the walls come down. Is there anything wrong with it? No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Does it have any special significance in the New Testament such that we would associate it with the rosary and do this? Not necessarily, but I, I think it's a great idea for the people to go to the state capitals and uh, surround, uh, engulf the state capitals, especially the uh, government buildings, with the rosary shake the walls with the rosary, I think it's a very fine idea. So I would say, well, marching around seven times, you know, why not 70 times, you know? <laughs> uh, let's go there and pray the rosary and keep praying the rosary until uh, <clears throat> the graces are, uh, you know, are the, 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 the sufficient graces and the efficient graces are provided by God to... Mm -hmm to uh, overcome the enemy there, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the principalities and powers and, of darkness. Mm -hmm. So yes, by all means, go to the state capitals, pray the rosary. Okay. Don't stop. Yeah. Ceaselessly. Yeah. And Father, it was my understanding, I, I, could, be, I could be wrong, I'm not 100% sure, but it was my understanding that what took place at, um, in, in Washington with the uh, so-called ecumenical service. I don't, I don't believe it was actually any kind of ecumenical service. Like I, like you said, I, I think it was just the rosary. And then I believe, again, my understanding could be wrong, but I think what took place afterward is, is there was like a, a video um, message board where, where Archbishop Vigano had a kind of like a, a pre-recorded um, message that played there. But there were also religiously themed messages from, say, rabbis and other so-called so -called religious leaders yeah. that, that were also played on the screen, so I don't really know if that qualifies <laughs> as an ecumenical service mm, not or not. necessarily. It certainly wouldn't make the rosary an ecumenical service. Right, right, right. So. And, and not that we're any um, great defenders of, of Vigano um, and, and that kind of sense, but I think it was a bit of not exactly quite true to say that it was an ecumenical. Well, there were those who were criticizing Archbishop Vigano for taking part in an ecumenical service, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. And uh, if that's what it was, I don't, I don't see that as right. just criticism. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, then, um, <clears throat> Father, this next one is uh, from a viewer who says uh, we had previously answered one of, one of his emails, and uh, he says that he, he realizes that a traditional Catholic priest um, could perhaps um, not officially or theologically declare that the Novus Ordo popes are invalid or Ill illegitimate. But he said, Father, it seems that after uh, the 50 or 60 or more years of evidence with all of the, uh, quote, papal heresies and blasphemies and sacrileges that have been spewing forth from the Vatican's, uh, from, from the Vatican, um, it seems to, to be 
proof positive, Father, that these Novus Ordo Popes do not have the faith uh, that they're modernists in place. I mean, he says that this just seems to be logic and common sense. So how can we not, after this um, half century or more of evidence, how can we not for certain say that these Novus Ordo Popes are not Catholic, that they are invalid and illegitimate? Well, Tom, I, I think you know that I think we have certainly the evidence and the logic to support that conclusion. I think I think logically it is the conclusion we'd have to draw. Anyone who uh, knows the evidence, right? Not everybody necessarily is aware of it, but those who really study the question and really know what uh, the New Order Popes have produced, what they've said, the statements they've made, and, and compare it to the faith or contrast it with the Catholic faith, I think they'd come to the conclusion that they don't have the faith. They don't have the Catholic faith. <clears throat> and uh, logically they would say, well, you can't be a member of the church, you can't be a Catholic unless you have the faith, so how can you be the Pope if you don't have the faith? And they would be supported by theologians in the church who would say that's a perfectly Catholic position to hold. Um, and they, they would, I think, be very um, right in saying that those who dispute that point especially those who say, well, I agree with you that, uh, say, for example, Francis does not have the Catholic faith and does not have the virtue of faith, uh, but he's still the Pope. Uh, I would argue that that is completely illogical and, and not ill-theological. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is actually against the... Uh, uh, kind of the common teaching of the Catholic Church that, uh, you know, you have to have the faith to be the Pope. Uh, can't defect from the faith publicly and be the Pope. But anyway, um, but again, I mean, to declare somebody uh, with ecclesiastical authority, to declare someone for the whole world, for every soul in the world, as a matter of, as it was a dogmatic fact that someone is not, a, not the Pope, uh, I don't have that authority and you don't either. I mean, it, it takes authority, okay? And even though we may be thoroughly convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that, for example, Francis cannot be the Roman pontiff, he cannot be the victor of Christ on earth, he cannot be at the same time the supreme pontiff of the new order, the modern faith and the novus ordo religion, and the supreme pontiff of the, of the true Catholic faith, right? even though we're absolutely convinced of that, that in itself doesn't give us the authority to make some kind of dogmatic pronouncement about that uh, and to enjoin that on the consciences of other people that they have to believe it because we say it, because we see it. We don't have the uh, power to enjoin the consciences of other people to believe our logical and theological conclusions. You, you understand what I mean? Sure. Okay. It's a matter of having the power of magisterium to declare that for, for you know, everybody in the world. And uh, I know I don't have that power of magisterium. Um, I would argue very uh, decisively, I think, that, uh, you know, for the, I think I would hope convincingly, too. You see, here's the problem, though. You know, when, when, you, when you talk to people about this, they immediately get very uncomfortable because they think the point that you're making, uh, the conclusion that you're driving toward, is basically telling them that Christ has failed, his promises proved to be false, 
the church yourself is annihilated, they think you're arguing they. They think that's what you're actually saying. And you're not. You're not saying that at all. In fact, what you're saying is that they're the ones who are arguing that. They're the ones who are saying that um, the, the, the church can be led and misled. Uh, the entire church can be misled into practicing a false religion by a true pope. Uh, and um, not only a false religion, but a religion that is antithetical to the traditional, the true Catholic faith, the true Catholic religion. Um, and uh, we know that that's impossible. So the problem is you have two sides of the question. Each is thinking that the other essentially is saying the church is finished, it's all over, and Christ has failed. And I don't think either one of them is saying that. But they're, 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 they're drawing the conclusions from the, each other's premises, as it were, that they must be saying that. And they're desperate to argue the point to say, no, uh, you know, Christ's promise has not failed. The church has not failed. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, but uh, anyway, as I say, um, <clears throat> I think the, uh, the problem with those who are so absolutely determined to um, somehow uh, to insist that Francis is the vicar of Christ on earth and is the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, I think they have the seeds of, uh, of the destruction of the church in their minds without even realizing it because they are constantly changing the church's concept of the papacy itself in order to suit Francis. They are basically falling into Francis's net. I mean, he's arguing for the dirty church and the smell of the sheep. The church was always a mess. The church was always a mess, right? Make a mess, he says to people. And so they're falling into that mindset. Yeah, the church was always like this. There was always... I mean, the church always had these problems, you know. They were always duking it out, trying to argue, well, what's the faith? And, you know, the leadership of the church was always uh, full of bad people doing bad things and arguing, you know, um, uh, disagreeing about matters of faith. It was always that way. And they're actually the Novus Ordo conservatives out there who are falling into that mindset. I mean, Skeljacht, or whatever his name is, a prime example of that, First Peter 5, right? He's kind of fallen into that mindset. And this is the danger of just thinking, you know, that defending the papacy of Francis at all costs, you know, and never accepting the possibility that, that even the possibility that, that he's not the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church. We all admit that he is the supreme pontiff and the pope of the Novus Ordo. We all acknowledge that. The question is, can he be at the same time the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church? And uh, there are those who say, absolutely not. There's who say, yeah, there's no problem with that. And I think they're in big trouble. I think eventually if they, if they stay with that, they're going to wind up theologically in big trouble. And they, they might even wind up losing their faith over it. Mm -hmm. Father, I once uh, heard someone say that uh, by refusing to take the dogmatic Sedevicantist uh, position that you are somehow leaving the door open for uh, for at least the possibility that Francis is a Catholic and the possibility that you are in communion with Francis. Is that what you're doing by refusing to take a uh, 
a non-dogmatic, or by refusing to take the dogmatic state of Vicantis position. Oh, so one has to take the dogmatic state of Vicantis position, otherwise he's compromising. Right. And uh, I'd say, no, that's, I'd say that's nonsense. Really? Why? Yeah. I'd say, well, I'd like to know what their argument is, why it's so. I mean, they, they're affirming that, so the burden of proof is on them to show that it's true. And I don't know what their arguments are to say you have to have a dogmatic stance that he's not the Pope, because if you don't have anything less, if you don't have that, then you are leaving the door open to being in communion with him and that he is the Pope and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but, you know, the church's requirement is not that um, if somebody could possibly be the Pope, then you have to accept it. The church's position is you have to be convinced that somebody really is the Pope before you accept it, right? right. Uh, the church's principle given to us back, you know, and during the time of the Great Western Schism was Papa Dubius, Papa, Papa Nullus, in effect, right? You, you have to be sure that the authority that is real, right, that he really has that authority before you're bound to obey him. And even then, I mean, uh, if he commands you to do something that is against the faith, you couldn't obey him anyway. But all the more so, a fortiori, if the very basis of any authority he claims to have is is at best doubtful, you know, you do not have the obligation to obey where well, there's a doubtful authority behind the command. Besides, I mean, the, the person, whoever is saying this, that you have to have a dogmatic position on this subject, uh, I think is is very, is wrong, just downright wrong, because if one is personally convinced, according to the principles that the church given him, gives him, that Francis cannot possibly be the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo and the supreme pontiff of the traditional Catholic Church at the same time, <laughs> it's because the, the, the faith of the, of the Novus Ordo is modernism and the faith of the traditional Catholic Church is the traditional Catholic faith, and St. Pius X has explained they are antithetical, one is the negation of the other. <clears throat> they're not compatible. Um, I think having that conviction personally is all one needs. That doesn't leave the door open you know, to any of these maladies that this individual or whoever there is suggesting. Mm -hmm. So no, you don't need to claim the power of magisterium to, to declare that um, one's own uh, conviction that, that this medicine cannot be the supreme body. Mm -hmm. And as I say, I mean, you're actually ba backed up by theological opinions of worthy Catholics, teachers, doctors of the faith uh, from the past. So it's a perfectly traditional Catholic to hold, position to hold. The only problem that I see is where people argue, and we've talked about this before, that if you have an extended period here where you have men uh, who you are convinced cannot possibly be the supreme pontiff of Christ here on earth, the vicar of Christ on earth, then the church which ordinarily chooses its popes by the electors, the cardinals, the clergy of Rome, uh, would have died out. They would have been installed by non-popes and would not, be, would not be true cardinals, and so they couldn't really elect a true pope. And their, their argument is, well, then in that case, the church could run out of, uh, you know, could be, be possible... The church would not have any more popes. The, the line of popes would be finished in the church, right? This is what the argument is. And for the longest time, I mean, I myself hesitated over that and thought, well, you know, are we ready to say that? I mean, is it really possible that could be so? 
Let's face it, that's a very serious question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but um, I don't know that that is so. I mean, I don't know that that is so. I see how the, uh, the Council of Constance in the uh, 1400s addressed this very question during the Great Western Schism. And I see that the church has other means, and God has other means, you know, to uh, solve such problems. We look in the book of uh, Destiny, the book of the Apocalypse, and Father Kramer's commentary on the book of the Apocalypse, and we see these two witnesses, the two witnesses who will come and will actually be the leadership here of the church at that time. And uh, Father Kramer says it's, I think it appears that... Uh, Pope will be himself silenced, or, uh, and the papacy will be usurped during that time. So we know that's not a, a non-Catholic position to hold, because Father Kramer's commentary is accepted by the Church, and has been all this time, yeah. as perfectly Catholic. Yeah. So those who would denounce that position as being a non-Catholic position uh, are wrong. They're just not speaking as... Uh, for the Catholic Church when they, when they make that pronouncement. Those who anathematize, those who hold, personally hold the state of God's position, those who anathematize them are speaking for themselves, but they're speaking out of ignorance and they're not speaking for the Roman Catholic Church okay. because the Church has not anathematized people for this, who, who think this, for this reason, that uh, they have good reason to say that Francis and those who preceded him have not had the Catholic faith and therefore cannot be supreme pontiffs. There, there are worthy Catholic doctors and teachers who have, who have upheld that principle. Okay. So anyway, uh, I, 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 I loathe talking about the whole subject because I feel it is sort of a, <clears throat> a, a cul-de-sac or even a vicious circle we can go round and round and round. Whereas what we should be doing is really talking about uh, this whole issue in a very serious theological, tight, tightly reasoned theological fashion mm -hmm. and uh, stop throwing stones. You know? uh, those who have the true faith and hold to the Catechism of the Council of Trent <clears throat> and its teachings, those who want the traditional Roman rite of Mass and sacraments, those who recognize Catholic tradition as the supreme authority, right, the work of the Holy Ghost over every and every and all popes who ever lived or ever can live, those who recognize that should band together and hold together the traditional Catholic faith and stop arguing points that really uh, are important questions but questions that we really uh, are, are not equipped to answer right now. Mm -hmm. But we know we can answer the essential questions that tell us what we must do. And that is we must practice the traditional Catholic faith, that and that alone. And not follow the modernists on their mad joyride, right, of, uh, of the Novus Ordo. Right. Well, Father, I really wanted to get to this email before we finished off. It's from a viewer all the way in Australia. Um, <clears throat> she said that I was a deeply committed no sort of Catholic until 2015 when by chance, or maybe divine providence, I stumbled upon the old series of uh, WCB. 
She says, I stopped attending Nova Sorda Mass where I was a reader and a catechist. I feel as if I'm starving without the sacraments. And I fear offending God by going back to the Nova Sordo now that I am aware of the very many changes that were introduced since Vatican II that have created a new religion. Uh, but she says, how can I live in a state of grace without the sacraments? Um, she says uh, that w the only option that she would possibly be aware of in <coughs> Australia and her area would be the SSPX resistance. So would you recommend attending their Mass's father, or what, what else would you recommend for someone <coughs> in her situation? If that is all she has, and she can be sure they're valid sacraments, she can be sure the priest who is there was validly ordained in the traditional rite by a validly consecrated traditional Catholic bishop, mm -hmm. then I would say if that's all she has, that's what she should do to receive the sacraments, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know what alternatives there are in Australia, but she's aware of that one. Yes. But as far as being in the state of grace without the sacraments, well, you know, the, the Japanese Catholics held on for 200 years without seeing a Catholic priest. They had the faith, <clears throat> they sanctified the Sundays, and they, they actually practiced the faith as well as they could. And God gave them the grace to hold on to the integrity of the faith all those years. I mean, there were five, six generations of Japanese Catholics who were born, baptized by their... God made it possible for the laymen to baptize the children. So they were able to baptize their children as Catholics and raise them in the faith. They did not make their first Holy Communions, or perhaps they lived and died all during that time without receiving Holy Communion. But they had the faith, they practiced the faith as well as they could. And you can be sure there were many powerful graces given to them by God. Many, perhaps many great saints came from that. Because <clears throat> God sanctified them in their faith, obviously. Um, and so, when missionaries did return, they found that the, the Japanese Catholics, uh, there were still Japanese Catholics who held the faith, I understand they even, in some cases, kept the corporals in which the Masses had been offered and spread them out, and they just recalled uh, the Mass and actually went through the motions of the Mass to keep and made spiritual communions all during that time wow. and united themselves spiritually with the Mass wherever it was being validly offered in the world. You know? It takes great faith. Um, so uh, they were basically being held prisoner at that time by the enemies of the faith, um, and uh, they were sanctified by that. Hard? Well, hard in one way, humanly speaking, but for God's grace, it is not a challenge. God can provide that grace and can sanctify the soul by the longing for the Mass and the sacraments, which pleases our Lord so much. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay, well, perhaps the last email, Father, but... Um this is from a, a, a very new viewer, um, someone who just uh, just found out about the difference between Nova Sordo and traditional Catholicism. And so she maybe has 10 or 15 questions here, Father, but they're all in the same vein, and I think they can be, uh, yeah. can be generalized here. But she says, with all due respect, I don't believe you are addressing the issue of people that have grown up with the Nova Sordo without knowing it. She says, how do I know the Novus Ordo is not just a label? How do I know that it's wrong? How do I even identify if I am in a Novus Ordo church? This is a crisis for me, and I don't think I'm the only one experiencing this. 
I don't believe Pope Francis is a good pope, but do his errors invalidate the church I now attend? Where does the Novus Ordo Mass even come from? What is the difference between the Novus Ordo and traditional Mass? Why am I just now, in my 50s, finding out about this? I have many questions about all of this. Do the scandals and heresies mean that the Mass itself has been subverted? I'm somewhat in disbelief. Also, how does Fatima fit in with all of this? She also asks if the Novus Ordo Mass itself is illegitimate. If so, are my confessions and Holy Communions and all of the sacraments in the Novus Ordo invalid? She says, I have been attending the Novus Ordo my whole life without even knowing there's a traditional Mass until the coronavirus struck. Yeah. So I don't know how to untie all of these knots, and I feel dis spiritually distressed about this subject. So what are the basic things that I need to know, and what are the immediate steps I need to take while I'm sorting through all of this? Well, uh, she needs to educate herself. I mean, how could she possibly know whether the Novus Ordo, the new order that has, came in after Vatican II, and all the changes with all the, the Mass and Sacraments and all that, how could she possibly know <clears throat> how wrong that is unless she knows what the true traditional Catholic faith is, right? What the true traditional Catholic religion is. And the only way she can learn that is to study and find out, get information, you know, make it a point. Uh, one of the first steps I think she should do is try to see if there's a traditional Catholic priest in her area she can talk to and just come and present all these questions. I mean, you, you could write not only a paragraph on this, you could write a volume on it, you could write several volumes, you could write a library in answering those questions, really. <clears throat> and uh, that's because there are answers, and very good answers, as we know, to those very same, very good questions. This poor lady, though, uh, because of the coronavirus, now has become aware of something she had no idea of before, and that there is a new order that she's been raised in, and she suddenly realizes, wait a minute, you know, <clears throat> this that I've been raised in as Catholicism is something newfangled. It's just in a new invention, uh, and uh, it is not the traditional Catholic faith of my ancestors. <clears throat> and she has to learn whether you know even convince herself that that is true. She's hearing it, but she she doesn't know that it's true, and she needs the information. So, um, I mean, to start from you know. Catholicism 101, you know, from the start, from the first question of the Catechism, is not possible here now. But um, what kind of sources would you recommend now? Well, you know, there are some volumes that actually have been printed in other languages and been translated into English. And uh, one one was known as uh, Iota Unum, a, a book that actually was published at the time. <clears throat> it it gave a very comprehensive overview of these changes and how wrong they are, and how they were a total departure from the traditional Catholic faith and religion. Uh, it's been translated into English, I'm not even sure what the title is now. Um, but there are resources like that, and I'll tell you what, we have to make a, a pledge to respond to this dear soul. It's a lady. Yes. You have to respond to this dear soul with, with giving her somehow a list of things that would educate her in the traditional Catholic faith so that she knows what the difference she has to know both in order to know the difference between them to compare them to contrast them and more it's more of a contrast contrast because it's a contradiction rather than a comparison uh, which I think she will readily see I recommend that she get a copy of the traditional r mass missile though 
uh, with the English and the Latin, but a true traditional mass um, with the old Holy Week ceremonies. You know, you're not even with those 1950s newfangled <coughs> uh, ceremonies. Um, so that she has a real traditional missal. If she doesn't know where to obtain one, we can, we can let her know so that she can actually see what the traditional Mass really is all about. Um, I mean, she can actually observe the traditional Mass live-streamed on our website, right? And uh, there, there's a, a lot of information on the Internet just by beginning to read. In fact, I just uh, spoke with a young gentleman uh, recently, I've been in the last 48 hours, who actually began reading, and again, it was a similar story because of COVID-19 and all this uh, lockdowns and churches being shut and uh, doors being barred and all that. He began to really look into this as to what's happening in the church and why the bishops would shut things down, the Novosoro bishops, and he discovered the existence of the traditional Catholic faith and really? religion wow. and church. And he began reading and reading, and he, he's come to Mass uh, a couple of times now, and he just saw me about wanting to have the course of instruction to know what the traditional faith is. Because huh? his great. intention is to begin practicing the traditional faith entirely. That's so great. it's kind of interesting that that would come, be followed uh, almost immediately by this <laughs> email of a, a lady who's uh, having a similar experience. Wow. So let's, let's uh, make the pledge to get her the information she needs. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I, I know it's kind of a startling thing to have all of this suddenly come upon you and you realize, like, opening up a... It's almost like opening your eyes and suddenly you see, like the scales of St. Paul falling from his eyes, <clears throat> and suddenly you see things very differently. He was a persecutor of the Church, <clears throat> now he's preaching the faith, right? Um, and that's very startling. But, you know, thank God, right? Thank God for the grace. Absolutely. Father, any uh, closing remarks before we finish the program? Well, uh, we have a lot of what Catholics believers who we need our prayers. Some of them are ill and uh, suffering with other great hardships and other adversities. I ask people to continue their prayers for Hank Raska. I ask them to continue their prayers for Robert Gorey. And also for uh, Dr. David Hofrichter. Dr. Hofrichter had surgery today for a very painful affliction uh, that he's born very patiently. And uh, so much that uh, I'm in admiration myself. But I'm praying that he gets relief. So uh, I ask everyone who uh, views our videos to join me in, in asking God to grant that relief for these fine gentlemen, for so many of the ladies, too, who are, uh, again, suffering hardship and adversity. But all, all of our uh, Catholics, uh, pray for the conversion. Pray for the conversion of all. Um, some, some actually object when you would say, let's say, well, <clears throat> you know, pray for the conversion of, of, a, of a Joe Biden, uh, of a Nancy Pelosi, of a, uh, uh, even of a Charles Schumer. Can we pray for their conversion? Well, we can insofar as we want them to glorify God. And what would be the greater way for them to glorify God for them to, but for them to convert? Because it would take such an enormous amount of, uh, it, well, it would glorify God greatly if they humble themselves before God and the world. 
admitted the the horror of abortion that they are responsible for, and uh, earnestly besought God's forgiveness and God's mercy for these. Uh, and uh, I mean, it is something worth praying for. We know that we know this. Okay, we humanly speaking say, well, there's so many other more worthy people to pray for. Well, I mean, we'll let God decide that. But we do know this, that if we pray, and our Lord insists, he demands that we pray for everyone, including our enemies, the first word of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, this is Lent, I mean, we're, we're approaching that moment when our Lord is raised on the cross, and the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you think, what was in our Lord's mind and heart when he said those words? He didn't say them lightly. The first of the seven words on the cross, that's what our Lord said. That's a lesson for us. That's a lesson for us. So we have to realize the power of the prayer, not only praying for our friends. Our Lord says, well, what good is that? Even the pagans, the pagans salute their friends and do good things for their friends and wish their friends well. <clears throat> he said, I'm demanding more of you than that. I want you to pray for and not curse, but bless your enemies, you know, and do good to those who offend you. And so this is what our Lord insists, Servant on the Mount, right? Servant on the Mount, he made it very clear. Um, so um, this is what we should be doing also. We should be praying for those who are the enemies of our our own souls, the souls of our loved ones, for the enemies of our country. We should be praying that God will convert them. What, what better conquest, what more thorough conquest would there be of, of, of the soul of anyone uh, that, but that he be converted? Because that's what God wants. He wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. And so when we're praying for that, we're praying for what God wants. That's a powerful prayer. So let's do that too. Let's not forget that part. <laughs> anyway, Tom, I'll, I'll leave you. Yeah, sure. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Father. I appreciate your time. I know all of our uh, all of our emailers do as well. So thank you well, I, I hope so. I appreciate their patience. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so, to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.